coming out to the 44th annual Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival. Yay! I'm going to be your moderator for this panel. My name is Dedder Dennis Mallow. I'm a local comedian uh, and actor. And of course, we are doing a panel called Sci-Fi DIY, where we have a panel of uh, expertise in the DIY of filmmaking realm. Uh, they make films on their own. They make films for other people, and they basically do it themselves. That's how this is going to work. Uh, before we get started again, let's please give a big round of applause for uh, Orleans Restaurant for hosting us all week here at the Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival. Big round of applause to Kayla and Kayla and Anthony and everybody here who's been absolutely wonderful all week. And of course, uh, we are going to go ahead and jump right into the panel. I will ask our panelists a few questions. Uh, some will be silly, some will be about the art of DIY filmmaking. All of them will be about the art of DIY filmmaking uh, and their opinions and their experiences. And then we will open the floor up to you, our audience members, so if you have a question um, at any point for either one of our filmmakers or all our filmmakers, please feel free to write it on a cocktail napkin, carve it in a yard, do whatever you need to do to remember that question for later on. Uh, we will get to you as best we can. Uh, so opening up, we have uh, our, a wonderful uh, expertise in DIY filmmakers starting here with the first person on my life, uh, left here. We have uh, Marco De Luca, who is the director of Beneath the Trees that premiered last night here at the Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival. Uh, and then next to him we have uh, Paul Solomon, director of Encounter, uh, which is uh, premiering Saturday night, this night, tonight is Saturday, February 16th, here at the Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival. Yay! I've been playing it all week, and now it's come at 7 p.m. It's now finally come to the day where it's going to happen, and now uh, I'm, I'm flustered. Uh, and of course we have next to him uh, Peter uh, Strayer, who's an actor and filmmaker, who also made our uh, trailer for the Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival. And he's also... The creator of Alien, uh, Alien Party Crashers, which will be available on the video on demand next month. And then on the end there, we have actress and producer and director and all, mistress of many hats, uh, Taryn O'Neill, uh, who's film, and I'm going to say it the right way this time, live. Live. It's live. Live. I get, every time I get it wrong, throw a piece of copper at me, because that's the name of the live album. There was a band from the 90s. They did a song about Afterbirth. All right, and uh, her film, uh, her short film, like, will be a part of the Boston Sci-Fi short films this evening, so you can see plenty of the things going on tonight uh, from our filmmakers. But jumping right into the realm of questions about DIY filmmaking, uh, sometimes as a DIY, DIY filmmaker, you have to work with whomever is available, family members, uh, friends, the only person who fits the bill for the uh, that showed up to the audition call. Uh, how have you dealt with working with, in finger quotes, less than professional people, both cast members uh, and crew members in past? And we'll go ahead and start off with Paul, who I know has an opinion on that, and then we'll uh, bounce around to our other uh, filmmakers. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think the number one thing in regards to that is. Um, it's all about respecting your crew, about treating them, especially if people are going to work for you for either like lower rates or even especially free. You got to feed them really well, and you need to treat everyone really well on, on set. I mean, it, it really just comes down to that. Um, my film Encounter was shot in Augusta, Georgia, and we're technically the first Hollywood film to be shot entirely in Augusta with a primarily Augusta crew. I only brought some people in from LA, just some key, uh, just like four or five positions in. Uh, but the idea was to use an Augusta crew, and mostly they were green, or they were newer to the, uh, you know, to working on films. But, you know, I made sure that everybody knew that you know, I don't have an ego on set, and I, and I don't. I, I think that's the most important thing. You, you can't. You can't have an ego. You know, you, you can be confident. You should be confident and know what you're doing. But you know, it, it's it's all the weakest link. So if you have a PA that you know doesn't show up on time, that could like derail your whole day. So everybody needs to know that they're important, and you need them to make your movie. So as long as you keep that in perspective, you know, you can work with a green team and still get the desired thing. We kept on schedule and came in under budget. We never had a second meal and I shot everything that I wanted to shoot. And it was a pleasure. It was one of the most pleasurable. I've worked on fi over 50 films and it was one of the most pleasurable experiences I had for a first time director. Um, Marco DeLuca, have you had experience working with uh, less than professional people and how have you uh, dealt with the situation? Uh, 
I, I really think that the most important thing is that they, whomever comes in set for whatever amount of money, they need to know that you, you're making a film and they need to believe in that film and they need to be there because they want to help you make that film. So if you need to spend too much time convincing them, then maybe they're not the right people to have on set. Um, other than that, I absolutely agree with you. They're doing something for very little, so or sometimes you know even less than little. So treat them with respect and give uh, them they deserve. Uh, Taryn, as an actress uh, who's had to deal with other actors. Uh, alongside them where you spend many, plenty of time and now as a filmmaker how have you handled situations with people who are troublematic uh, or less than experienced or just you know they create issues on set well I think first of all you, you try to go into it not thinking that people are going to be problematic you have to have that positive attitude um, I know as a filmmaker I um, I sent out the emails you know, the night before, just being like, I am so grateful to have every single one of you. You know, each, everything that you guys do individually makes this film. Nobody is more important than the other. Um, so just sort of starting that narrative before you even get on set. Um, but as an actor, um, or just having, I've worked on many commercial sets where, you, you know, it, it, there can be trying times or trying people, and at the end of the day, we're professionals. And so you treat people with the kindness that you would like to be treated. You don't let them impact you. I mean, we're mercurial creatures, that's for sure, as actors and as filmmakers, and we're sensitive to energy. And so we just, you, you put up that, my, my acting teacher used to say, imagine there's this violet energy around you and all the negativity bounces after you. I'm like, okay, sure, that works. But I think that just, um, and then I did sort of a St. Christmas Day speech when I got to set, and I'm like, we're not curing cancer, but we're gonna tell a story that's hopefully unique and moves people, and we're gonna do it together. And everybody was like, yay! I'm like, oh, it worked. I finally feel a strength. I think <clears throat> I got the impression, Dennis, that part of your question was about if it's low budget, you might need to like bring in people who aren't used to doing it, like friends and family and stuff like that. That as well, yes. Um, I. I'm lucky in that, you know, I think we're probably all lucky in that we have friends who happen to be really talented industry professionals, you know, who are actors and people like that. When I was shooting my debut feature, which was um, here last year under the name Canaries, by the way, it was here last year under Canaries, and then it will be released next uh, next month as Alien Party Crashers, because that's US distribution, that's how that works. And by the way, that's um, a sequel to Wedding Crashers with... No, it's not. No, it's not, Dennis. Um, but... In the in the instances where people who weren't professional actors or filmmakers were on the film, there was one guy who uh, was an extra, and his part sort of got expanded. And he was brilliant. He was a microbiologist, and he just naturally had uh, a great attitude, and a, a, you know ended up being great on camera. So it, that you can find these just wonderful hidden gem, gems of people who take it seriously and who end up being great. And in some ways, a lot less perhaps mannered and affected maybe than if you. You had an actor playing a small part it, it just worked out you know I wasn't there to like cheat any actors out of that role but it just naturally organically expanded based on based on him being cool um, you know something else too that you know that I did you know in, in just regards to respecting everybody on set is I sat down because I was using a crew that I wasn't familiar with I sort of trusted my keys and I said look you know the people that should be hired but I want to meet all of them and I literally sat down with everybody on the crew before we started and just had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with them and basically said hey look you know don't worry you've got the job this is you don't have to you know convince me of anything I just want to get to know you as a person and a lot of them what was interesting some of them are like, wow, I've never talked to a director before like this. And I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah. And like, they thought it was like unusual, but it's like they, they knew they were part of a family. Everybody knew they were involved. And, you know, I, I wound up storyboarding the whole film, which we, we'll probably get into later about stuff like that. But I made sure that everybody on the set uh, had a copy of those storyboards. So everybody knew what we were filming at every given moment. And, and that helps because, look, I've been a producer, I've been an executive, you know, time is money. And anything you can do to mitigate losing time and money is the best, you know, is, is gonna help you out in the long run. So that's really what it's about, you know, it's, when you have everybody on the same page, boy, you can almost do anything. 
Good. And, and, and since you brought up uh, storyboards, we'll move ahead to that question of, and we'll start. Uh, can you ex uh, speak to the importance of storyboarding and shot listing? Because a lot of people think, hey, I'm just going to show up, put up my camera in a place, and then that's how we make a film. But there are things that, uh, like shot lists, that are very important uh, to the filmmaking process. And can we explain the process of going through storyboards and shot lists, how to make one, and what should go into it, and then at what point do you abandon it? And we'll start with uh, Marco DeLuca. Just quickly, I think that when you know that you're making something with very little money, um, you need to be extremely prepared. So, you know, making a, a shot list or a storyboard um, really allows you to then realize that, you know, when you're on set, when you're on a set of a film that is made with very little money, your, your risks and it just everything pretty much can happen. And um, so you better be prepared for anything, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, the shot list comes um, straight from the script. Um, for me, um, we didn't have a storyboard um, because our location changed um, but what, um, the uh, Friday before the Monday we were shooting, so we had to uh, kind of adapt <laughs> quite a few things. But, you know, again, because you pre-plan so much, then you can almost afford to have a last-minute uh, decision. So, yeah, planning, planning, planning. It was definitely the most important thing because I had 15 setups a day. I had a DP who, for basically free of charge, um, I'm sorry that I'm telling people this early. Um, <laughs> she, I mean, we spent two days together storyboarding um, and you know, I, I could not have done it. I liken it to an athlete, like I was a competitive figure skater. So I would visualize my programs before I competed, just like a basketball player visualizes his shots. And as a director, you have to visualize how you are going to shoot this. And so, you know, for the week before, I would see the frame. I would see the action taking place in the frame, and, and basically I would be running it virtually in my head. And so it was, uh, there's no way we could have done it if we, we didn't storyboard. I didn't have the budget to have a storyboard artist, um, and, but we had very, I drew my own little storyboards for, for my own sort of just visual edification. Um, but yeah, those storyboard lists everybody had. We shot out of sequence. Um, I mean, the shot list, sorry. Everybody had. We shot out of sequence, and I tried again to, to make people be on the page as much as, as we could because communication was key. Um, <clears throat> following on from that, I think uh, shot listing and things like that, it's um, very important, I realize, to do it once you have a location locked down. It's all great, you know, in your head without having seen the location, but then you get there and, and like you said, Marco, it can, it can change, you know. Um, one thing I'd recommend to any uh, young filmmaker, up-and-coming filmmaker, is uh, whether or not you like the film or not, I got this mini film school from this commentary uh, on the remake of Insomnia, the Christopher Nolan movie, where there's a commentary where it shuffles the film about in the order in which he shot it. So I got this great mini film school in how to schedule a film and, and how, you know, like the, the order of a shoot and stuff like that. And he started off with something simple, just a couple of actors in a room and then built up, did an action sequence the next day, then day three is into a big dialogue scene. So that for me gave me a great sense of like, oh, okay, right, this is what it means to shoot out of sequence and this is the kind of things you can do and how to schedule things where you're in the same location and how to shoot to make it fresh. And I'd recommend that to anyone. And Paul, if you can be a little specific on what elements go into a shot list, that way people who are, who are gonna end up creating a shot list for the first time know what they should be doing. Sure, I'd love to. I didn't use a shot list. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, I tried on the first day and I'm like, yeah, this ain't working for me. Um, I actually, um, uh, okay. I can't draw to save my life, right? Uh, but I knew I needed to storyboard the film and we did not have a budget for a storyboard artist. I've been using this program called Frameforge 3D, which I highly recommend you looking into. It's sort of like Sims, okay? Um, yeah, right, it's called Frameforge 3D. It is not an expensive program. It's like a sort of drag and drop thing where you can literally virtually create your environments and your characters and put, you can either use real cameras or virtual cameras and you can do your shot you choose your camera, your lenses. I mean, it's amazing. And I wound up doing 1,200 storyboards. I storyboarded the entire movie in, like, editorially speaking as well. And I was able to show my actors 
the entire film. I have a screening theater in my office. We, we they came over, had like popcorn and candy, and we watched our movie before we shot a single frame of it. So you did a previs. Yeah, it was like a previs for the whole movie, um, which is kind of insane, but not really because it didn't because. Like you said, it's like I've now directed the movie once. So when things change, when like locations would change, it gives you that adaptability. But these storyboards, I would, you know, like I said, I'd made everybody on the set have them. It was a big book. Tom, you know, Tom would see him like we had these huge books. So you could literally just, you know, show people like in the DP, everybody knew what we were filming. And that's why I didn't use a shot list because I knew... You know, I knew what we were filming for the day, but I knew exactly the shots, and we really didn't do a lot of unnecessary coverage. We shot what we needed, because I already had the film, in essence, edited in my head as well. So, like you said, the more planning, what, what's the old adage they said? Those who fail to plan, plan to fail, right? And there's, that is the greatest truism there is. So the more preparation you do, do not if you're doing a low-budget project spe specifically, spend the time. Have that movie as visualized in your head and ready to go before you, you know, commit this thing to film. And more than likely, you will be successful with it. Uh, moving on oh, uh, from that, uh, out of your opinions, favorite cheap piece of equipment uh, that you've used in place of an expensive piece of equipment, like $5 can lights from Home Depot, homemade gym. Uh, I've seen people use a broomstick as a uh, boom pole. Uh, so is there anything in particular that you've used over the years of filmmaking where you're like, yeah, this would be a lot better if I had the pro, pro version of this, but hey, this piece of PVC pipe or whatever it is that you were using uh, is just getting the job done. Uh, and we will start with uh, Peter on this one. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to cheat mm -hmm. and say... Uh, my favorite thing to, to lower the budget on making a film is shoot it in whales. Um, yeah, it's... Like it, Jonah, inside of a whale. I, I can't... No, it's, it's whales the country. It's basically... It's, it's the British Columbia of the UK. It's, uh, it is a beautiful locations, fantastic actors, um, and just crew and actors with just this sense of, like, you know, there's no kind of like, oh, I need to spend six months living as my character before I do this. It's just like, right, what's the character? Great, okay. A couple of takes, bit of redirection. Great, okay, great. We're done. Now let's go to the pub. Um, and that's true of the crew as well, and it, it's just so... so uh, I'm lucky in that you know I grew up in Wales and that I was able to shoot in this fantastic Welsh Valley. So for me, I'm I'm lucky in that. Uh, and then my in-laws lived on Martha's Vineyard, and, and you know, so I was able to shoot part of the film where in some of the Jaws locations. So for me, the 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 the, the low-budget piece of equipment was actually I had access to some amazing locations. Um, in terms of saving money elsewhere, it was a question of I can't use spend time on dollies or jibs or any of this kind of stuff I just it was just a question of designing shots so it was a, a kind of a Paul Greengrass start, sort of handheld style um, which and, and you know watching the film like I, I I don't know anyone who was like oh you know what that scene would have been much better with a dolly you know it's like I think ultimately if you've got a good story good actors in front of the camera it doesn't matter as much you can save money behind the camera as long as you've got good cameras and good lenses then you can save money that way yep. Uh, does anybody have an opinion on like a uh, DIY hack for using a good lens or a camera that may be more advantageous? Like using a Rebel TI, which a lot of filmmakers started with, still does great photos. So is there anything equipment-wise that you may think of could be a good substitute uh, or something more accessible to independent filmmakers who may be starting out. I mean, Soderbergh just shot his new TV series on an iPhone. Yes. So... Or I think it's a, it's a movie, isn't it? Uh, it's a Netflix show. Oh, uh, was it? I thought it was just a, a, a movie. Maybe it's a movie. I don't know. It's, a bas it's something to do with basketball. So, I mean... Oh, I'm thinking of a different thing that Soderbergh made. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that you have, like, a, I was really fortunate that, again, my DP, who is an angel, um got me an amazing deal on an Alexa with anamorphic lenses. So I was able to shoot, you know, beautiful footage. Um, we, sh we sh used a red for my flashback fight sequences. Um, did some lens flare tricks or whatever for that. Um, you know, I mean, but for DIY stuff, when I shot web series, it was like, the rolly chair is a dolly, <laughs> you know? <laughs> That'd be a great example, a rolling chair, yeah. Um, 
you know, I, I was lucky too. My my uh, DP, he actually owned two Red Dragons and like the lens packages. And then uh, one of the guys on my camera crew, Christian, whose birthday it is today, so we can wish him a happy birthday. Um, he actually owned his own Steadicam, which was great, which we used a lot. But the funny thing is, the opening scene in my movie should have been shot with a techno crane. We could not afford a techno crane. So we came up, because the idea of the shot is you're starting at, uh, on a butterfly, a live butterfly, and you start panning, the, the butterfly flies away. I'm not ruining the movie for you. Uh, <laughs> this is the opening shot. Uh, and then you start panning down, you start like dollying down, and you see this trench, and the trench gets bigger and bigger as all these Humvees and police vehicles come up, and you come up, and then you, you're, you're following them. People get out of the cars, and it's like this long shot. Well, that's a technocrane shot, totally. But we couldn't afford it, and we didn't have a lot of time in the film. And what we did is we made we took the dolly, we put the steady cam on the dolly and had two grips. They sort of guided him down and then helped him off the dolly at the end, but they had to pull the dolly and the tracks out while he came around. <laughs> which is like really crazy, but we got it in the first take, which is like, it was this choreographed thing, we did three takes of it, and what's hilarious, I mean, you can sort of see the little jump, I and mean, we tried to fix it digitally, but you know, we could only do what we could do. But what's crazy in it, when we noticed when we were editing the movie, that as he comes around, you can see the butterfly take off in the, uh, well, I mean, it takes off beforehand, but then it, there's a reflection of it in the, um, the windshield of the car as it's flying off as the shot is continued, which is like, that's awesome. It looks like we planned this. I mean, you could never plan this shot. You could never get that. Like, if you tried, that would have to be a digital thing, but it's, it's on there. So it's the, leave yourself open to funny happenstance that happens on set. You know, that's the, the fun thing, too. How did you afford a butterfly wrangler? Um, you know, it's funny. We actually had to get butterflies. It was... You know, it was so funny. Can I tell? I'm sorry. Can I tell a really funny story with the butterflies? Uh, we got like 12 monarch butterflies, and they have to be kept cold, right? And the butterfly wrangler, who was one of our PAs, but she was like really careful with these things. They come in little sleeves, and they're kind of asleep. So you kind of wake them up, and she goes, "I'm going to show you how this is going to work." You know, you wake them up, and she put it on like one of the uh, a plant nearby. We're shooting in an airport, and it just sat there and it did its things, and I just like snapped my fingers and it flew off and I'm like I hope we just didn't lose our star player there you know what I mean? she goes oh no, no 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 it'll be fine so when we're filming it the first four butterflies they put them down they immediately flew off and it's like oh god and we only have so many of them and it's like this is a lot of stress and then and, and then we did one shot and yeah and then it, it just it worked out. Like, it was one of those things where it worked out, but it was like, we also had one that wouldn't fly away, which was really funny. So it's like, oh man, try to limit anything on your film that is like an X, when you're like X a factor. X factor. You know what I mean? Like, they always say, don't work with puppets, kids, or um, animals. animals. And I had all three of them on my film. <laughs> all three of them. And they all were. They all were stressful. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, actually, except the kid. I take that back. Which you'll meet Callie later if you come to the movie. She is remarkable. So, which I, by the way, that is a good time to mention that this panel is also sponsored by the Butterfly Clapper. Clap on, clap off. There's a butterfly. No, uh, Marco, do you have anything to add to DIY equipment? Just about really use, um, make the most of what you have, and try to be as resourceful as you have with what you have. 80% um, of Beneath the Trees is shot in a forest, um, in a very, very muddy English forest, <laughs> where the weather, you know, is not um, clement. Um, and for the very beginning um, scene, there's three characters getting to the forest, and we're all like, shit, we really need a crane. How are we going to do this? And, and at the end of the movie, we realize that instead of using this actual forest which is in Hickstead, so miles away from London, we decided to go into a park in South London that has a bridge and just shoot it with a normal pan following them kind of in between the trees and it actually works really, really well. So, you know, sometimes you just gotta take what you have and, you know, make it look a million bucks. Yeah. Uh, and move on, uh, just to stay with the question of gear. Somebody who wants to become a filmmaker, uh, just starting out, first day, what three pieces of essential gear do you think they should start with? Whether it be final draft software, 
obviously a camera would probably be on that list, but other things that, that we think, uh, hey, it's, it'd be a great time to plug your book. And in fact, we will start with Paul Solomon, who has a great book. Uh, which is one of the peak, uh, uh, key pieces of gear every filmmaker should have is I'm going to do a book. shameless plug for my book here because actually I'm I, the king of shills. Yeah, okay. No, no, no. But the, the, my, okay, so I wrote this book called On the Set. Okay, it's uh, This is the fourth edition just literally came out. And it has interviews with people like James Gunn, Wes Craven, Gail Ann Hurd, Lynn Shea is in this new edition, Ed Newmeyer who wrote Robocop, and, and all, like over 90 people working in the industry. But... The reason why I wrote this is because I, I couldn't find a book like it because it's basically everything you need to know about working on a film set. It's every department, um, actually I should leave that up for a second. It's, it's every department, like terms you need to know for that department, who works in the department, what they do, and sort of advice from experts and set horror stories and also the rules of etiquette. But it also has like the, the chart in it that's sort of the chain of command chart, which a lot of people don't understand the chain of command on a, on a film set. But, but that's the thing, I mean, it's, it really is, I mean, you know, all joking aside, it's knowing not just what you're supposed to do on a film set, it's to know what everybody else is supposed to do on a film set. So um, that's, that's really an important aspect of making a movie, not just like the technical aspect of, but yeah, something like Final Cut Pro, you know, it's not that expensive. Premiere is being used. It's actually better these days. Avid's expensive. It's more of the um, the um, industry standard. But Adobe Premiere, it's it's great. It's what Final Cut used to be. And um, like she said, you can film a movie on your iPhone. I mean, that's the amazing thing. So you need a camera, a way to record that. You know, record the information and a way to edit the information. Voila, you have a movie. And maybe movie magic so that you can make a really good schedule. <laughs> I would say, uh, I would agree with a, a, a good editing piece of software as well. Just um, <clears throat> And the reason for that versus any of the other stuff is I think you can potentially write initially write a movie out on napkins or in notebooks before you then format it. Um, shoot on iPhones and then, but then in terms of giving yourself um, training on editing, even if you're going to hire a, a, a proper editor, which I also recommend, you at least get a sense of how things can cut together. So then you train your, your mind as an editor, and then when you're shooting on set, you go, oh, okay, this, this shot I'm going to do is going to cut with this shot, or if I put this shot here as an insert, then it's going to work. So I, I would agree with that. The, the, what I would add to that is to make sure that you come up and you just keep an open mind to meeting other people in the industry so that when you're starting you're not starting alone you know you're, you're like you know oh well I can talk to my buddy Paul about you know how to shoot a film and then maybe he can come on the set and help me and stuff like that so it's not just you and you know people you know from your basketball team you know it's suddenly it's you and other filmmakers other actors you're hanging out I live in a really you know sort of non-movie area of the country now I live in Farmington Connecticut two of the two of the most <clears throat> amazing connections I've made in the industry have been there randomly a guy moved down the road who like works with da David Gordon Green and Jeff Nichols and was his uh, Jeff Nichols second unit director and helped me shoot the trailer for sci-fi um, and he's a neighbor so it's like if you're just open and friendly and like ask people about themselves you know before too long it's like oh wow I know I'm in a part of the country that's not LA but I just met another filmmaker so just be open to making connections. Darren, anything you would like to add? You don't have to. No. I'll put it there. Okay, that's, that's good. Uh, moving on. Uh, uh, getting into the really important questions about it. How do you find out what your budget's going to be when you're making a film? Because I know definitely there's plenty of people who over budget, under budget, ask for more, and end up it being too much, or they ask for not enough, and they feel out, find out that oh, we needed twice the budget to make this. So what are the things that go into figuring out what a budget for a short film, a feature length, any production in general, even a documentary? Because when you're working on documentaries, you have to budget travel and cost and uh, film 
uh, batteries and stuff like that. So initially, where do you come up with what your budget is going to be? And then we'll start with Marco DeLuca, who's sitting right next to me. Well, I mean, as you say, I mean, um, I've said that before as well. I, I, I make documentaries for uh, British um, TV, and um, I'm actually given a budget. And usually because it's a documentary, the budget is very, very small. <laughs> and they always say, yeah, you have to make something amazing. And, you know, I've been given that. Um, but uh, from that budget, you really realize what you can do. And then from what you can do, then you start thinking, okay, then maybe I can, you know, make it look even better if I ask you favors, if blah, blah, blah. But I think the most important thing when you make a budget is to be extremely realistic about contingencies, about possible problems that you're going to have, and mainly where you're going to put money in. Um, if, um, you know, if, well, especially for this film, I mean, if maybe paying an actor a little bit more because you really think that she's so great and you really don't want to miss the opportunity to have her, um, you know, it really depends on, again, where, where the money goes is where you think um, is the strength of the, of the film. Um. I'm just thinking back to my web series days where um, we would have web pitches uh, for digital series that we'd be meeting with companies on. They're like, what's your budget? And we could literally do the project for like $20,000 or $2 million, <laughs> like depending on sort of the level of special effects and action and everything. Um, so for, for live, I financed it myself and initially had financing for it, but I knew that I was going to have to supplement it anyway. But really, I just went down, it, it came down to sort of those larger pieces where it's like, okay, so... I need to find a location for X amount of money. What are the parameters this location needs to serve? How many days am I shooting? What is the minimum number of crew that I can have on, on this set to make this happen? Am I what is putting away 15% for contingencies? Um, am I budgeting anything for like marketing or publicity? No. It's me. Um, you know, so it's basically those big pieces. And then you, I brought a line producer on who sort of wore multiple hats as well. She was my unit production manager um, as well. So she just did, filled in a lot of pieces. Um, we created a budget together. And then I went, oh, we got to strip away $6,000. And so we figured out where to, where to streamline and fine line, um, fine tune. Uh, and you said fit, you put away 15% for contingencies. Is that a good percentage? Is that a low percentage in your experience? My experience is this is my first film mm -hmm. that I've done, Soup to Nuts, so I just thought that sounded like a wise number. Okay. Yeah. Um, my experience was that, I, I, well, I think this is true of any filmmaking, you know, in that uh, if you're hiring people, maybe sometimes you've got this, uh, you've got your first choice and your second, you know, you've got a little shortlist. And I think that's true sometimes for budgets as well. You've got like your dream budget and then you've got, okay, what can we do for this amount? And then what can we do bargain basement for this amount? And then how, what is it that I lose from, you know, budget A through to budget B through to budget C? And okay, now we're going to not shoot on this. We're going to shoot on this. We'll cut this location. So I think it's always worth having like a, a, a dream choice and then a second, then a third for, for budgets in, in my experience. So the, the, first, um, the first thing I ever did as a director was a short, I did a parody of Unbreakable called Unbakeable. That was a short film that I, I find, it actually had Orlando Jones and Elaine Hendricks in it. Um, and um, it was done like in 2001. It was my first experience as a director. And yeah, I had to fund it myself. And I, I, I found the best thing in regards to the budget was I, I had like X amount of money I could spend on this, right? So, what's the best way to save money on your budget? Do as much as yourself as possible. So, I wanted this movie to look exactly like Unbreakable, but of course Unbreakable was made for $100 million or plus, whatever. Um, so what I did was, you know, for wardrobe, I, I became the wardrobe guy. I would go to thrift stores and, you know, meticulously try to find stuff. You know, I'd find a hat that was perfect for a buck. You know what I mean? Instead of, like, going and buying it brand new, I'd go to, like, the thrift stores. And it was just really about, um, you know, okay, I needed this location to be a hospital. What are the, you know, what's the smallest amount of stuff I need to do this? Okay, I need some curtains because, like, that's what's in that shot. Um, I did it in my garage. You know, I just tried knowing that I had a limited budget to work with, 
I tried to figure out what stuff can I beg, borrow, or steal that I don't have to actually pull as much as from, from the budget. So that left me, you know, in, in don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid. I mean, it's so important in this business to just, like, be a good person. You know what I mean? Don't take advantage of people. If you don't take advantage of people, yeah, they'll help you. And, you know, or Orlando, I mean, I, don't, I hope he doesn't mind me telling you this. He just liked me and thought it was funny. And he, like, did them. I bought him a TiVo. You know, at the time, you guys remember TiVo? Yeah. Like, that's what I bought him. Like, my biggest budget thing was buying him a TiVo, you know, for, you know, for it. Yeah, and, and for compensation. He was, you know, came and did this you know, we shot only three days and he came for one of the days. And, but that's what it is. If you, if you're just honest about, hey, this is what I need, or you can do quid pro quo with other filmmaker friends with like, hey, if you come and be the DP on my movie, I'll come and produce your film. You know, like finding quid pro quo things to do and really meaning it. Because look, your integrity is everything. So if you, if you say you're going to help somebody out, you better help them out. Um, and that's really what it's about. And people will help you as long as you're, if you're smart about the way you put your project together and you know that, hey, I really, when I tell you I only need you from 8 a.m. to, you know, 6 p.m. on this day, a lot of people will say, you know what, I can carve out that time and you better damn well only use them from that time to that time. You know what I mean? And, 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 and I think that's important and that's how you can really get people to help you. If you really stay true to yourself and true to what you need their help for, it's a big, it's a big factor. Uh, out of curiosity, just very briefly, if, and we'll go in reverse order, is there something that you had to sacrifice because of budget that just broke your heart? Maybe it's not consequential to or imperative to the movie, but something you're like, man, I just wish we had that extra couple bucks to put this one thing in one production. Uh, and if we could just go backwards on that, just one thing real briefly that you had to give up. Marcus or me? Or whomever. Okay, uh, it, literally just shots of time of having to like only have two takes of this one shot and we had to actually cut one setup as well. So I just, I didn't have the money to, to start dealing with overtime um, after the 12 hours for my crew and I hadn't, I hadn't, I hadn't had that discussion really before um, and we had a limited time in the location, we couldn't go overtime there too. So basically it was just, it broke my heart that I couldn't edit the movie and with the footage that I wanted to have, the performance I wanted to have. Paul, is there something that in one of your things that you were like, if I just had that couple extra bucks in any production that you're like, that's the thing that said, you know, it kills me that we got rid of that, but. You know, in hindsight, it was more about, and thank God, I had a really, I had two remarkable editors on, on my project. One of my, my second editor was Kevin Ross, who is the editor, Emmy-nominated editor of Stranger Things. And he worked on my movie when he was finishing up season two of Stranger Things, and he was going on to the X-Files, and he just liked the film, and he, and he just was working on his free time on it, which was wonderful. But one thing I learned from him that, you know, it was like a hindsight thing, was just having that extra amount of time to take time when you're filming stuff you know, a, a good piece of advice, and this is and this is sort of like if this was a hindsight thing, is that roll the camera before the scene starts and let it continue to run because you're shooting stuff digitally these days. Unless you're you know you're still a film purist, and good luck with that. Um, but you can let the so let your let your you know don't call cut immediately. Let the camera roll because you'll get when you're working with great actors. Yeah, you're gonna get those extra moments, those unguarded moments sometimes, because sometimes they don't realize the camera's still rolling, and you'll get those moments, those quiet moments, and those moments can add so much to your film, and Kevin was a genius at getting those moments, and I watched the film, and it's like, it's like, wow, he used so much stuff that was shot, you know, before the scene started or after the scene ended, just for the pacing of the movie and to get these beautiful reactions that, you know, in hindsight, I wish I had taken the time to do. So I, I feel very lucky that I did shoot everything. I didn't sacrifice anything on my film. I just, from lack of experience, there was stuff I should have shot that, you know, that was able to... Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. Peter, anything you've ever uh, felt like you've had to sacrifice? It was, uh, it was less about sacrificing and more just a... a
you know, like Paul was talking about, you're on your first feature and you're, you're cutting your teeth while you're doing it, was that there was a, a very complicated sequence. There was like a fight by a riverbank and there were all these different angles. And that's the one where there was a moment where someone said, okay, what, what, what are we doing now? And I just went, uh, you know, there was just that moment, you know, it was like the naked in front of the classroom moment. I was like, uh, and, and so then I think if, if me now goes back and would, you know, had a time machine, went back to, you know, sort of me prepping the film, it's like, okay, get, Star Wars figures or whatever, and then just you know map it out and plan out like if this is a really complicated seeking with. I did. Block, but there you go. I did it with, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Star Wars figures, my Doctor Who. Actually. Yeah, I think it's, well, well, whatever it is, and then you know get your iPhone out and go. Okay, I'm going to shoot here and here and here and here, and and I I just realised that that was the one sequence where I had a good handle on you know people talking in a kitchen and this fight scene because you're only shooting it from three or four angles maybe, but then this thing was like a million angles and it was an extended action sequence that, which then went up to a different part. Of the location and that's the one where I was like I absolutely should have uh, pre-planned that more so then I would have saved a little bit of egg on my face but it worked out luckily because I was working with some great people. And Mark, anything you've ever had to sacrifice? Yeah, no, I was just, I was just going to add that, I mean, in, in films, time is money yes. and so as she said, um, trying to have um, you know, I mean, the idea that you're making something with very, very little money or sometimes, you know, really like no budget at all, that doesn't mean that, that, that doesn't mean anything, as in you still need to have, need at it. the end of the end, you need the material that you need to get into the edit and edit that scene and you want it to be as beautiful as it can be. Um, so I think compromising on time for me was the biggest um, challenge. And then I'm going to ask our panelists two more questions and then we'll open up the floor to Q&A for our audience members. Uh, and one of the final two questions is going to be is what are the steps that you took getting your films funded? Because funding is a big part of filmmaking. So uh, from, from soup, soup to Nuts, when did you, uh, what steps did you guys have to go through for funding? Well, I am going to, I financed this myself. I had savings um, that was supposed to take me through the rigors of an acting career. And I decided to bite the bullet and use that towards um, making this film. I primarily made this film as a calling card for me as a writer and a writer creator. I just only now, having done the film and, and run the post, realize how much I friggin' love directing. So I sort of screwed myself there. Um, but. Uh, you know, so it's you. You have to take a leap. There's not a lot of funding unless it's very specific and niche, and you can find a fellowship. There are great fellowship opportunities um, to get funding um, if it's Sundance or Tribeca, but it's very competitive. Um, I, initially, I did have funding uh, for this film, as I had said, but it wasn't going to make the film that I, I knew I wanted to make. Um, you know, and so you just sometimes you have to bite the bullet and and invest the blood, sweat, and tears and your own funds to get your filmmaking career off off the ground. But um, hopefully, it opens more doors for other people to want to jump on the train and and uh, and give you some money to help make their story. I, uh, I I agree with you. I had pretty much the same experience because um, when I realized um, I had quite a lot of people saying, oh, why don't you apply to the BFI or Film London? And the thing is that they tend to... I knew that I was going to make a horror sci-fi film, um, which basically get no real recognition in the film founding um, state world. Um, so I said... Um, and also, I, I just felt it was really time to make it. Um, um, and not wait one and a half years of back and forth of emails and stuff. So, um, yeah, I just got my money and said, this is what I have. So that's also where the budget kind of comes from. This is what I have, and this is how I'm going to play it out, and this is how I'm going to do it. Um, I kind of had a bit of a unique situation with Encounter uh, because I had really been, you know, working with Augusta and they were, you know, anxious. They really wanted to show that they could uh, compete with Atlanta and Savannah, which were sort of bursting at the seams. And Augusta had sort of this infrastructure, uh, but it wasn't being used. It, it was, it was, um, you know, some really talented people down there. And it, and my producer, I had, I had a single producer, and this was her first feature, which is a, a remarkable woman. I mean, just absolutely, like, I always joke that she's sort of the unofficial queen of, of Augusta, and everybody loves her down there. She owns two restaurants, um, and, uh, 
what she she basically called me one day and she said, "Look, we need to make a movie here in Augusta. You know, we need it for the community, and you need to make a movie as a director because I, I, you know, I, I've been in the industry." 30 years working as a screenwriter and working in effects and as a producer and so forth. And she said, she basically said to me, you know, figure out what you want to do. We were going to do it on a really low budget. I mean, this was going to be a micro budget originally. And I, you know, here's the thing too, this is worth saying that every movie has, should have a proper budget. She made the point, and it's a very valid point where, well, I could make this thing for $2,000, I could make it for $2 million. That is a very valid point, and that can happen to a lot of movies. But there is a proper budget for every script in essence, okay? And, you know, one of the biggest problems is people try to make, you know, $30 million movies for, you know, $3 million or, you know, or try to make a $5 million movie for $5,000, and it just never works. I actually wrote a script to be done for that micro budget, and what happened is once people started coming on board on it, and you know we got Luke Hemsworth, um, you know a, as our star, he really liked the script, and it started. Well, look, you know other people, investors came on board, and um, and we were able to get the budget a lot higher because of it, because now there was like interest in this in this film up front, um, so our budget went up. So to I had the, almost the opposite problem where it was a movie that could be done so low, but we were actually having a more healthy budget, So, which was great because we didn't just go, oh, great, well, let's just line our pockets. It was, no, we put all the money on the screen. It's just we were able to pay everybody properly and get the resources that we needed. You know, but it, I guess the point being that just know that when you decide what project you're going to do and have that budget, that it can be done for that budget. It's great to reach for the stars. Yours had some very imaginative effects in it, which was really great. And I could see, you know what I mean, I could really sense that, oh wow, this movie was definitely done on a budget, you know what I mean? But they were using it so cleverly. You're very clever how you use your effects. I mean, it's really, really great. And I wrote it knowing yeah. that I wouldn't have a big budget for VFX, so I'm yeah. like, how can I do the glow of the HUD, the heads up display unit just on her face. Yeah. I only have to like map it out in a couple shots. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is like, you know, being clever in that aspect. I hope I didn't get too much off the topic there, but but yeah, so I mean that's so that's how my movie got made. It was a lucky thing where well, it wasn't a lucky thing. I, I feel like I had earned the opportunity to do the movie, but I had somebody who actually believed in me and believed that I could do it. And then it blossomed from there. And then finally Paul? Peter. I'm dead. Sorry, yeah, sorry, Peter. On the wall. One name Peter, one name Paul. Peter, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So, so quickly, it was a combination of, of of two things. One was that knowing going in that it was going to be not so big budget, I wanted to focus on character and dialogue because I think this was a point that was made in the earlier panel was that you've got things with amazing effects and blah blah blah, but then if if there's not relatable characters, good dialogue. Um, it, you know, it, it's kind of uninteresting and it's just a mash of effects. So so what was good about that was that then we got some tremendous actors, you know, UK-based actors from like Game of Thrones and Torchwood and Doctor Who and, and things like that who really responded to the script. And so then you get juicy characters, juicy dialogue, actors respond to the script and then people know those actors are involved and then that brings in some money. So I would always say to any screenwriter out there is, is make sure that you've got some, um, some nice juicy dialogue and banter in there because you'll attract better actors who want to say those lines. Um, luckily, I managed to get like one private investor. It was a combination of one generous private investor and then an amazing lead actor-producer, my creative partner, Craig Russell, who was able, who's worked in the industry for years and then was able to just call in amazing favors for next to nothing. So it's a combination of a bit of financial generosity and a lot of begging and borrowing and stealing really we got we got milk the company that won an oscar for ex machina to do vi visual effects for pretty much nothing um on canaries so it was it, it's a combination of all those things i think and then the final question and then we'll turn it we'll open it to the floor uh the final question is uh per about permits when should somebody get a permit for filming and where are times where you can Guerrilla filmmaking, get in, get out, or I know we were talking uh, earlier in the in, in uh, Washington, D.C., District of Columbia. The rule is if you don't set up a tripod, you don't need a permit. 
Uh, but I'm sure there's other times where you need to go permit and the process to go through that and when is the time it's like, hey, I don't need a permit. So yeah, if we can speak on that very briefly. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to add on to sort of what they said in regards to, you know, where you shoot. You know, like in L.A. is one of the most expensive places to shoot. You don't make movies in L.A., which is really odd. Augusta, Georgia, you can get up to 35% tax credit. So it's like also, you know, if you meet a certain threshold. But here's the also wonderful thing about shooting in Augusta, Georgia. No permits necessary for any locations. Okay? So in, in the, the Georgia State you know, Commission, you know, um, was very supportive of us. You know what I mean? Which was great. And yeah, we did not need permits for anything. So that's great. But it, you know, it makes me think back that when I did Unbakeable, we filmed outside in Ikea and we totally gorilla, like totally gorilla. I had so many people. I, I needed to do the uh, train station sequence and we just friggin' shot it. And there were security people. No one stopped us. We just acted like we were supposed to be there. Which was crazy. And we shot for like an hour and a half. And no, I, I'm still to this day am just shocked that nobody stopped us. So if you're going to do gorilla filmmaking, just make sure that, you know, you could, you know, get shut down. So make sure you shoot your most important stuff quickly and know that if that's what you get, that's what you get. So start with the master shot. I have a, I have a DC story, which is that we did a bit of shooting for Canaries, soon to be released as Alien Party Crashes, um, in DC. And But this was just after someone had accidentally flown a drone onto the White House lawn. And we were shooting in Union Station so there were police and dogs everywhere and here was me and a guy, you know, like walking around. Luckily it was all like, it wasn't dialogue, it was all just MOS stuff that we could shoot for second unit. But we, I, I decided, and, and people tell you, oh, you know, if you're shooting guerrilla, you just tell them you're a student filmmaker and then people leave you alone. No, nowadays if they're, they're they'll say, all right, so where's your student ID card? So our plan, if we got stopped, which I came, well, which I'm almost as proud of as the movie, is to say, oh, we're shooting a skit for a friend's wedding video. Because then people are like, oh, that's nice. You know, like, Do you know what I mean? And they're like, okay, well, you know. And, 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 you know, and, and then they're like, okay, well, listen, you can't shoot here, but, you know, well, good, you know, congratulations to your friend, go shoot over there. If you say, well, I'm shooting my masterpiece, then they're going to go, well, where's your permit and fuck off? Or you're under arrest. So I feel like, yeah. Adding on to that, you do need a permit to shoot with a drone, and you need, and you also need the the drone operator needs to be a like a licensed drone operator. See, I, there's something I didn't know. That's um, good to know. And I'm trying to remember where. Yeah, because we were talking about I have a drone, but mine's just CGI in, in mine, and we were talking about whether to fly it out there or not. And they were like, "No, you actually." So I learned that. Um, but another thing besides the permits is SAG. Um, if you're working with union actors, you need to file. You need to go through a paperwork process and be a SAG signatory production company. Even if you are just a single entity, you need to file your paperwork with SAG um, so that they can clear your actors. Even if you're not paying them anything, you're deferring payment, which you can in some instances. Um, so you you have to give them at least three weeks before you start shooting. Um, and there's different contracts now. You can do it under um, there's a there, new media and short film, two separate ones. And then there's also just a micro low budget that sort of is an umbrella because it used to be you couldn't do a web series but then also have it show at festivals and it was all just stupid um, but they've improved it so yeah be aware of that uh, and now we'd like to open the floor to questions and we will start with the first question uh, from one of our judges Miriam who has a, a question I think uh, particularly for Taryn hi Taryn hi Miriam um, we actually love live so much and our audience really loved it so I'm here to present you an award I get an award for Best Actor. Best Actor! Terry. I guess I'm not supposed now to get my day job uh, award business is done, uh, is there anybody who has a question for our filmmakers, uh, that, an actual question for our filmmakers that they would like to uh, open the discussion with? Oh, yes, come on up here, young man. This is a question for all of you. What was your initial mindset going into this with knowing you have a low budget? Like, what were your main priorities for making this movie? 
to have it done to to actually being able to make it through and have something you know um i mean you've got amazing filmmakers here they've made amazing films um but i'm sure that uh, you know when you start actually embarking on a journey like this you shit yourself you're like i don't know if i can carry it through i don't know i'm sorry sorry um um, but at the end of the day, again, you know, believe in the original idea, believe in your crew, kind of believe in yourself and just make it happen. The, the question was, what was your original mindset? Yeah, going into um, Yeah, I'd, I'd go along with that. And also it's just, um, for, for me, I, I, I knew I needed to do it. I had this, this epiphany of like, if a piano fell on my head in three years time, what would I have wanted to have done before that happened? And it was definitely written and directed my first feature film. So it's one of those things where then it's like, okay, let's let's come up with an idea and let's get people around and let's do it. But once we actually started doing it, obviously I was I was nervous, but it was a, it was again just if if I can just fulfill what was in my head and communicate to everybody what I want and just and like you said, don't be a dick, just be nice to everybody, welcoming them whether they're making the tea or whatever. Then if you can just keep all those balls in the air at the same time, then. At the very least, you're going to have a really great time doing it. And then, you know, hopefully the idea is to, to communicate to everybody what you want. So, so mindset was, was get it done, be clear, have fun, be nice. I have a really simple mindset. Um, and I think that this applies to anyone who's looking to grow and do new things in their life. And it's about being comfortable in the discomfort. So when you're feeling uncomfortable in something, it means that you're doing something new and that's exciting. And so embrace that and don't sort of put it at a distance. So that got me through a lot of like, there was a lot of times to make the movie where I was just like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't. I just wanted to curl up where it was safe. And I just pushed myself past that discomfort. That's great. Um, you know, I think my mindset was if I was going to be given this opportunity to make a movie, that I wanted to make something that I perceived as special. You know what I mean? Like, if I was going to get this chance, if this, if this was going to be the only chance I got, that it had to be on me if the movie succeeded or failed. So there's no excuses. I can't say, oh, I didn't get to shoot this, or I didn't have enough money, or I didn't get this, or I didn't get that. No, I made the movie I'm, I wanted to make. And I, that was the thing that I was really hard on myself on. You know what I mean? I, I didn't want there to be any excuses. So know that and be true to yourself. And and I think my only my other big like concern in mindset was I just and I just wanted it to feel like a movie. Because I love movies and, and it was funny, endless conversations with my DP, it's like I don't know what that thing is, but I want this to feel like a real movie. And that's always the nicest compliment I get when people see it. They go Oh wow, this is a real movie. Like I show them the trailer, like, oh, this is a real movie. You know what I mean? It's like, thank you. That's all I need to, you know, that's all I need to hear. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, because you know, I, I do have other friends or other people who, like made stuff and it just has that low budgety feel, which is fine. You know what I mean? Because we're all too, you know, you know, learning. You know what I mean? And there's nothing wrong with that. And also, actually, to be said with that, you can't beat yourself up. You know, don't don't expect I don't look at my film and say oh this is technically flawless because it isn't there are very few technically flawless movies so don't beat yourself up over it just know that you gave it the old college try and no matter as long as you're trying to make something you know what I mean then you know it'll, it's going to come out the best of your abilities and it's a learning process and I, I uh, how old are you if you don't mind me asking 15, 15 year old, a 15 year old teacher filmmaker right there. So thank you. I hope this was educational for you. Uh, and moving on, was there anybody else who has a question for our panelists? Yes, there we go. Hi, yes. One of the things as a film viewer that bothers me sometimes is errors that creep into the production that sort of break the flow of the story. So do you have any tips for avoiding those errors on the set or dealing with them in post? By errors, do you mean continuity errors or yeah, continuity errors? Um, Scripty. Script, yeah, just just you know, obviously, hopefully, a script supervisor where you can you know remind remind an actor which hand the coffee cup was in or something like that. But I mean, again, I, I suppose that goes down to like what you're saying about you know, hopefully, you get enough shots where if someone's picking up a coffee cup with a different hand, you know, it's going to bother someone. You've got another shot to cut to. 
<clears throat> or find that person that you could trust to be a script supervisor or, or coordinator. Yeah, way. yeah, absolutely. But I, I think if, if you're talking about you've, you've gone into the edit room and then you realize, oh, well, I can't go back. And I, I was lucky in that I got like a little 4K camera. There were inserts I could shoot in my basement in Connecticut to cut into things in the film. But it, it's not always the case. You can't always do that. But yeah, just if you get enough coverage and hopefully if you've got enough eyes on it, then hopefully that won't happen. But here's something you just talked about 4k so we shot our movie in 4k right but we knew we were going to finish it in 2k so one of the things that gives you is the ability to punch in on your image okay so there was a couple of times there was one moment i was like i need this shot but we didn't i knew we didn't shoot it and it was one of those things like and we needed it for continuity we needed it to tell the story but we were able to find a shot that we could punch in just enough and put in a little movement on it that gave it some life. Okay. You know, I it, did that. I saved a scene that way. Yeah, you cheat. There's ways to cheat, like with the footage you have. And there was one shot too that I left as a. It was a uh, just a static shot, but it just felt kind of dead. And we just put in a very slow push in on it. You know, it never gets to you know any resolution issues, but it's just. You know, it's an artificial push-in, but you don't notice it as an artificial push-in. So it's it's allowing yourself thinking ahead. Where yeah, okay, I'm going to shoot it with 4K, knowing that it doesn't have to. You know, I'm going to. It only needs to be 2K or even less. So that anybody else have a question from our audience? Anybody? No. Yes. Hi. Izzy. Hi. Hi, Izzy. Hey. Hey. Uh, so besides having awesome dialogue in your scripts, can you? Give us any advice on how to get those higher quality big name actors that in turn push your project forward into good investments. It's a great question. Uh, my experience within the UK is uh, it's slightly different, you know, from what you're saying about SAG because there's a union there which doesn't have nearly as much power. So there's there's less paperwork. It's a bit easier to do. It's all sort of a bit more. It, it's a bit sort of lower maintenance. It's a bit grayer, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> what I will say, though, is that there are some filmmakers, as a filmmaker, never assume that you're not going to get someone. Because actually what, what I discovered was that through some friends, people loved the script and then said, um, oh, yeah, you know what? I can spend 10 days rolling around in the mud in a Welsh valley because I have money from the series that I did as a lead where I just rapped. Whereas an actor who is less famous and is out there trying to trying to get work for themselves is like, I'm sorry, I can't I can't do this or I can only do five days and is stressed out about doing your movie because what if they got offered a TV series? You know, whereas a bigger name actor is like, oh, I've just I've just wrapped a TV series and my next movie starts on this date. So yeah, sure, I'll come and hang out with you in Wales and do your thing. You know, so ironically, it's actually lower lower stress and more fun and and they had a better time and it was easier to get people who were who were bigger names in some cases so and then uh we'll wrap it up with just two questions real quick and uh one of those questions is just real quick who are you who's your bet on it in a low budget diy filmmaker cage match who are you betting to walk out of that cage alive robert rodriguez from El uh, who made elmar and and spy kids joe swanberg from drinking buddies and vhs or kevin smith clerks and mall rats and red state and stuff like that so real quick who, who's your money on coming out of that diy low budget filmmaker cage match Robert Rodriguez, because he handles a lot of guns. Great answer. Right. And vampires and everything, yeah. Are you talking about that they're having a film make-off or just a, just a slug-out? Whatever out. cage match means just, to you. Just a slug-out fight. Deluc is with Kevin Smith. He's in great shape now that he lost out all that weight from the heart attack. So, and then the, the real final question for everybody is uh, one piece of, of good resource for independent filmmakers like Film Riot or uh, Seth Whirler or something like that, what is a, uh, a good, uh, easy-to-find resource other than Paul's book? <laughs> just, just, I'd say go to, go to festivals. Don't be afraid to, like, to, uh, to talk to other filmmakers. Don't be afraid to talk to actors. Um, get in a community, a creative community, and and don't have the ego where you're like, well, you know what, I made a uh, I made a feature now, so I'm too big to like go and help out on someone else's set. You just you, it's you just never know. A set, I'm lucky in that I'm addicted to being on a set. I love it there. I've gone and made coffee for friends on their sets because I just love being around. And it's it's, I think if you can meet people there and make connections, so just always be open to to 
making connections. Here's one too. Watch movies. Watch movies. Okay, I'm like I joke that I'm the reason why Movie Pass failed because I watched so <laughs> many. I like I was their worst nightmare, and like I saw 88 movies in seven months, and now I'm doing it with the AMC A list. Um, here's the thing: you can learn so much not from great movies, but also from bad movies. Okay, yeah. and you can see how they did things, and, and it's so funny because I never watched movies really as a, I always go to, to enjoy movies when I watch movies, right? But I had to start training myself to watch it as a director. And the interesting thing, especially, this is my awesome DP over there, Denton, by the way, who drove in from Augusta, Georgia to be here tonight, which is amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, I started watching him as a director, and of course, you know, like, you want to start off, like, you know, like, you don't think you're Spielberg or anything like that, but I started watching other movies from, like, big directors, and I'm like, Oh, wait a minute, they're just shooting this like this guy shot the movie. You know what I mean? Like, and not being intimidated that, you know, you know, watch all levels. It's just because there's no reason why you can't, you know, learn from, from all of that. But please, just watch movies. Remember why you're making movies in the first place. It should be a pleasure to do that. Because you love them. And, you love them. Read the, the scripts are all available yeah. online now. Everybody uploads the scripts. So watch the movie and then go back and read the script and see how it was translated. Like, did you see that on the page? Like, how did the filmmaker bring that to life? I find that really helpful. Oh, and listen to DVD commentaries as well. Like, because I, I, I never went to film school. I trained as an actor. I didn't train as a screenwriter or a director, but there are all these, these great documentaries on BBC Two I saw growing up. And, and then you listen to, to DVD commentaries and you've got two hours of a director sharing their expertise. And hopefully it's not all palling around with actors going, you were so great in this scene. It's, it's you know, you've, got, you've, you've really got some insight in so many cases about how they did something. So listen to commentaries. All right, again, one more big round of applause for our filmmakers. Marco De Luca, director of Beneath the Trees. Paul Salma, director of The Encounter, which you can see tonight, 7 p.m. at the Somerville Theater. And congrats to Taryn for her award. Peter Stray, actor and filmmaker, uh, Alien Party Crashers, you can see on BB and Next One. And award winner, Taryn O'Neill, for the award live. Thanks for stepping on me there, Peter. I appreciate it. Thank you again. And uh, please see films. We have a 24-hour marathon starting tonight, going through tomorrow. Thank you so much. And again, uh, thank you again to Orleans and everybody involved. Thank you for coming. Goodbye.